people of Israel. This farewell address is recorded in 1 Samuel 12. It comes after Samuel did what the Israelites wanted. He found them a king like every other nation in the region had. And in a positively stunning event, the God and king of the universe, after being rejected by the Israelites, his chosen people, helped Samuel to find a monarch that would satisfy the people's needs, King Saul. And right before Samuel's address, in Samuel chapter 11, King Saul leads Israel in his first great military victory. Now, one more thing before we get into the actual farewell address. As I was going over this, this chapter for Samuel 12, I didn't find it really exciting, honestly. Um, as we were going over the, the list of sermon the, the list of chapters to discuss for this sermon series, I thought this is probably the one chapter I don't want to do. But um, as I studied it more and more, I realized there is some really good stuff here. And if you're reading along in First Samuel as we're going through this series, and maybe you've come across this chapter and you're wondering, well, what's what's the deal here? Maybe hopefully today we can we can figure some stuff out. So here it is, 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to start with verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have done everything you requested. I have given you a king. Now look, this king walks before you. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have walked before you from the time of my youth till the present day. So in this series, um, Kenny has talked a lot about listening, and he's made the point that Samuel has listened to God, which is a really good thing. But in this verse, I just want to highlight how Samuel wasn't listening. He wasn't listening in regards to his children. His sons are corrupt, and still here's Samuel saying to the people of Israel, here are my sons to help you. And this isn't a point I want to spend too much time dwelling on, but I thought it was a point that was important to bring out how Samuel had this disconnect between his sons and what they were actually doing in their interactions with the people. Here's verse three. Here I am, bring a charge against me before the Lord and his chosen king, whose ox have I taken, whose donkey have I taken, whom have I wronged? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe so that I would overlook something? Tell me, and I will return it to you. Samuel begins his farewell address as a defense of his leadership. The Cultural Background Study Bible says when ancient Near East rulers were removed from office, which Samuel essentially was when Israel demanded a king, it was common for that ruler's successor to make up charges against the person he was replacing. The idea being that the new leader would consolidate his power by eliminating the old one. So one could look at Samuel's words here in verse three as preemptively confronting false allegations that King Saul could bring against him. It's almost like Samuel is putting himself on trial and if it helps you, try to imagine in this story that it's taking place in a courtroom and Samuel has the people of Israel on the witness stand. 
I also want to bring up a word that's used in this passage. It's a Hebrew word uh, for chosen king, Mashiach. This word means anointed one or Messiah. Hold on to that for later because it's important. But for right now, we're going to read the people's response to Samuel. Here it is, starting with verse 4. They replied, you have not wronged us or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from the hand of anyone. He said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his chosen king is witness this day that you have not found any reason to accuse me. They said, he is witness. So if this is a trial, Samuel has just gotten the people to confess on the witness stand under oath with God as their witness. Samuel was a fair and honest judge. And so next we have this from Samuel. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is the one who chose Moses and Aaron and who brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt. Now take your positions so I may confront you before the Lord regarding all the Lord's just actions toward you and your ancestors. So for me, I, I start reading this address and I'm getting excited because Samuel's about to go into history and I love history. And if you love history, you're going to love this next part of the address. But if you hate history, that's okay. Maybe keep thinking this is a courtroom drama, like I said earlier, A Few Good Men, The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix. Um, as a matter of fact, when, when Samuel says in verse 6, to take your positions, imagine the people are now the defendants. And they're standing up, they're looking at the jury, and the jury's verdict is being read aloud. Let's head back to the text. When Jacob entered, oh, hold on one moment. I'm trying to move so everyone can see. You. You're welcome. Um, yep, if you can go, if there's one more slide before this one. Okay, all right. So I'll just read this part, then we'll go to this. Um, when Jacob entered Egypt, your ancestors cried out to the Lord. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron, and they led your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he gave them into the hand of Sisera, the general in command of Hazer's army, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and admitted, We have sinned, for we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the images of Ashtoreth. Now deliver us from the hands of our enemies so that we may serve you. So the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of the enemies all around you, and you were able to live securely. So in this passage, Samuel cites five leaders that God sent to rescue the Israelites. First, he mentions Moses and Aaron, who saved Israel from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. Next, we have Jeroboam, or Gideon, who led a minuscule army to victory over the Midianites, who had oppressed Israel for seven years. Next, we have Barak, the military leader Deborah appointed. He defeated Sisera and the Canaanites, who oppressed Israel for 20 years. Next, we have Jephthah, who put aside past conflicts with his family to defeat the Ammonites, who oppressed Israel for 18 years. Finally, we have Samuel himself, 
who, as Kenny talked about a couple weeks ago, led Israel to a victory worthy or remembrance or, or an Ebenezer against the Philistines, enemies that would torment Israel for years to come as documented in First and Second Samuel. Samuel is trying to emphasize an important point to the Israelites over and over and over and over again. When Israel was in trouble, God rescued them from their enemies so they could live in safety. Which brings us to that old cliche that everyone who likes history likes to, to use against people who don't like history. Uh, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. This includes the Israelites who, despite the many times God their king rescued them, ignored that history by asking for a king like the other nations. So now we go back to 1 Samuel. When you saw that King Nahash of the Ammonites was advancing against you, you said to me, no, a king will rule over us, even though the Lord your God is king. The Israelite request for a king is this deep, profound, complicated moment in the relationship between God and his people. There are so many different layers to it. Israel asking for a human king may not have been a problem on, on its surface, because if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, a book that was probably written before 1 Samuel, a book that was definitely transmitted among the Israelites before 1 Samuel, that book outlines rules for a king. So one could say that the people wanting a king in and of itself was not the problem. Uh, my, my best friend, Chris, he was looking over this sermon and he made the comment that if the Israelites prayed to God, grant us a king set apart by you who would lead us in your ways, maybe God saying, okay, here's your king. But the Israelites didn't do that. One of the other reasons why Israel asking for a king in 1 Samuel was a sin is because they asked out of fear. They're afraid an old enemy has returned, thus they need a king. They're afraid of Samuel's corrupt sons, they need a king. Rather than remember that God as their king led them to victory over the Ammonites once before, the people chose fear over remembrance. And thus they say to Samuel, give us a king like everyone else has. If this is a trial, the verdict has been read. The people asked for a king like the other nations and are guilty of rejecting God, their king. Now Samuel is going to announce Israel's sentence. And we're skipping ahead a little bit in 1 Samuel 12 to verse 16. So now take your positions and watch this great thing that the Lord is about to do in your sight. Is this not the time of the wheat harvest? I will call on the Lord so that he makes it thunder and rain. Realize and see what a great sin you have committed before the Lord by asking for a king for yourselves. Okay, so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord made it thunder and rain that day. All the people were very afraid of both the Lord and Samuel. All the people said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God on behalf of us, your servants, 
so we won't die. For we have added to all our sins by asking for a king. Why was God sending rain and thunder such a big deal? I mean, obviously, severe thunderstorms can cause damage. They can even kill someone. I don't know if you heard, but this past week, three people died outside the White House from a lightning strike. But why are the people in this story so afraid of the storm? The clue here is that this is taking place in the harvest season. Rain is not something a farmer wants to get during harvest season because going back to the cultural background study Bible, rain at harvest can cause what is called pre-harvest sprouting. Water is absorbed into the head of the grain, stimulating hormone production, leading to germination. I don't really know what those words mean, but the end result is that there are going to be less wheat, less wheat available. I thank you all. I've, that's all I have to say. Um, so in other words, rain during the harvest kills off wheat that the people rely on for food and income. That, I think, is why the people pleaded with Samuel to stop the rain out of fear of death. So at this point in the farewell address, we've gotten confrontation and we've gotten judgment. It's kind of a dour, depressing farewell address. But the trial is over. The sentence has been handed out. The people acknowledge their crime. And Samuel, instead of punishing the people further, encourages them. Then Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You have indeed sinned. However, don't turn aside from the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. You should not turn aside after empty things that can't profit and can't deliver since they are empty. The Lord will not abandon his people because he wants to uphold his great reputation. The Lord was pleased to make you his own people. As far as I am concerned, far be it from me to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the way that is good and upright. However, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Just look at the great things he has done for you. So Samuel was at a crossroads that I think a lot of us can relate to. He can decide to hold on to his anger against these people who have wronged him who replaced him and his sons with the king. Or with what time he had left, he could choose to love the people as best he can and teach them the ways of God. Samuel chose love. Honestly, if I were in his position, I, I, I don't know if I would be able to do that. Maybe I would pack up and leave and the people would never see me, but Samuel wanted what God wanted. And he thought, God would want me to stay and pray and teach. And so that's what Samuel did. Of course, the person the Israelites primarily rejected was God himself. But even though the people rejected him, God did not reject the people. Which made me think about the overarching story of the Bible, and particularly the parts of the story that takes place in the Old Testament. I've often heard, and I'm sure you have too, that the Bible in a way is two disjointed stories put together. 
You've got this story in the Old Testament of a jealous and wrathful God causing natural disasters and killing people for dumb and petty reasons. And then there's the New Testament with a loving God who would do anything for the human beings he cares for. And there are definitely some things in the Old Testament God does that, that makes us question his judgment. And there are important questions relating to all of that, that that we should ask and discuss. But when I read the Old Testament, what I see is a God who doesn't give up on his people. In Samuel's farewell address, he gives those five examples of how God saves Israel, including times when Israel chose other gods over the Lord God. And yet, God was still committed to the Israelites. Not only that, Samuel says God was pleased to make you, the Israelites, his own people, even after they wanted a king like the other nations over God, the king. And in verse 34, Samuel says, just look at the great things he's done for you. This reminds me of a point Kenny made a couple weeks ago that I'm going to rework a little bit here for our purposes today. So what if we do a better job of looking at the patterns that are behind? Can you see how that offers us even more of a foothold for our confidence in God? By Samuel reminding the people of their past victories given them by God, Samuel is anchoring the people in a stable past, in a long tradition of God's love, and God's memory. The point I believe Kenny and Samuel are trying to make is that if we recall what God has done for us in the past, if we look back at these stories like the ones in Judges and 1 Samuel, even if we look back at our lives and how we cried out to God and God helped us, we can live a present and future in less fear. Then we can possibly make better decisions than the Israelites did when they asked for a king like the nations. For me personally, I've learned over the last year that I had grown afraid over uh, America's future. Things would happen, I would read articles on my phone, I wondered if America was headed straight down the toilet. And one of the things that has helped me begin to grow out of this fear, emphasis on begin, is to look back at what God has done in the Bible. When I do that, I realize God has a plan and that plan cannot be stopped by anything we human beings do. That is one of the major themes of God's story in the Bible. God has a plan and he's going to make everything all right in the end. Samuel concludes his farewell address with a warning. But if you continue to do evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Guess what happened? King Saul was, was swept away, and eventually the people of Israel were swept away as well. But here's the thing. Earlier in the passage, Samuel mentions Israel's anointed king, the Messiah. Apologies for my, for my poor Hebrew. If you remember even further back this year, our series on Mark's gospel, you will know that King Saul 
was not the last Messiah the Bible spoke of. In Mark 1, that book begins with the declaration of good news. A new Messiah is announced, the Christ, the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one. Despite Israel's faults, God continued saving his people, which includes not only Israel, but all the nations, which means all of us. And even as I fail God and act more like the people Samuel judged in our story than I should, God is faithful and it's good for us to remember that. That's why we read from Philippians chapter two today earlier in the service to remember what Jesus gave up to be the anointed king, the Messiah, the one who saves us from whatever enemies we may face. And now we're going to take communion. We can eat this bread, we can drink this juice, and we can remember again what Jesus did for us. And this is not a moment of nostalgia for us to remember how great God used to be. But by remembering, we can find confidence that amidst these difficult things we're dealing with right now, Inflation, possible recessions, elections, COVID variants, monkeypox, and everything else. God hasn't abandoned us. 